0: With inflation coming under control and interest rates stabilizing in many major economies, 2024 promises to be a year of consolidation for markets. But as we enter a new economic cycle, what is the outlook for global real assets?
1: We're just going to continue what we've been doing, which is defend core, build resilient portfolios, and for high octane, take advantage of the
0: funding gap. I'm Ed Whitaker, and a warm welcome to the podcast, the podcast from Patrícia, the leading partner in global real assets. With 2023 witnessing the most rapid and coordinated increase in global interest rates for decades, we have now entered a new economic cycle that is resetting markets across the world. With this new macroeconomic picture playing out, what is the outlook for the real estate and infrastructure sectors and where will the most attractive investment opportunities lie in 2024? Tackling this topic in our first podcast of the year is Mardi McCrane, Patrizia's Head of Global Investment Strategy, Research and Investment Solutions, and Justin Webb, Head of Investment Solutions at Patrizia Infrastructure. So, Mardi, after going through the most active programme of monetary policy tightening for decades, what is the current economic situation at the beginning of 2024?
1: Well, there's both bad news and good news, I would say. So if you just roll back one year, we ended the 2022 with a war at our doors in Europe. And a year later, we now have two wars with what's going on now in the Middle East. And that will create uncertainty. We also have China's reopening that has surprised us on the downside. And this is probably a function of its you know, property markets, its tech rivalry with the US, and generally speaking, slower global demand for its manufactured goods. And then, you know, looking at Europe, you know, its growth has been pretty anemic in in 2023. And this is mainly because of the 2022 energy shock, high inflation, and the subsequent monetary tightening and rise of costs in the cost of debt finance for both corporates and households. Now, that's for the bad news. For the good news, we have not seen the recession in Europe and in in the US that most economic forecasters were predicting a year ago. And also we've seen higher growth and growth in the US that has surprised us on more or less on the upside. But I think that looking ahead into this year, we have to look at the undercurrents and not just the headlines.
0: So Marty, why is that? Can you perhaps give us a few pointers on some of the other major economies like China and Europe? So when we sort of craft our house view, and we, we use both top down and bottom up analysis, and
1: I think both actually signal that high inflation and high interest rates typically impact the real economy with a lag. I think if you look at the U.S. in November, U.S. M2 monetary supply fell, and this is the second month after October, and it's really turning negative. And proportionately, the drop in money supply since 2022 is the largest since the Great Depression. Not the GFC, the Great Depression. We're seeing also in the U.S. commercial bankruptcy filings up 141% year on year that was back in november twenty three compared to November twenty twenty two and this is likely to continue as the money supply falls you know on the action of the of the fed. so lending for private consumption is also getting more expensive. so this will you know probably slow down money velocity and slow down the economy as a whole. So the economy just can't sustain or will increasingly find it difficult to sustain those levels of, of interest rates now turning to China we have seen that um, uh, five of the largest Chinese state banks have cut annual interest rates for one and two-year deposits by 10 and 20 basis points, respectively. So China is trying to prop up its economy on the back of what I said earlier about its property markets and and, and the lack of of demand or slow demand for its goods. And then if you you turn to to Europe and focusing on the eurozone, we've seen that the the readings of of the CPIs have been unchanged at 2.4% year on year. I think that's low enough for the ECB to to look at uh, its policy rates and probably signal and start signaling a change in the course of direction of interest rates, both on the deposit rate as well as the the longer-dated interest rates. So, we think overall, we see a changing mood for 2024. On the one hand, we'll be more constructive as the cost of capital points to lower yield curves, both on the short and longer end. And maybe more challenging because of the full measure of lag- negative effects of high inflation interest rates on both corporates and households will probably start to eat up into the creditworthiness of, say, our tenants or our operators within our infrastructure portfolio. So on the balance, more constructive, but very different from what we
0: have been experiencing in 2023. So now that we're factoring in a more deflationary environment, what do you see as cyclical and what is perhaps structural when it comes to these drivers of inflation?
1: That's a key question. And uh, we've looked at the cyclical components and divided them into inflationary cyclical components and deflationary. So if you think, for example, of tighter you know, labor markets you know, leading to higher wage inflation, the expiration of price control measures, that will be cyclically more inflationary. However, restrictive monetary policy, fiscal consolidation, if you look at the normalization of food and energy prices and the slowdown in activity, you tighter lending conditions and, you know, slower or, or declining monetary creation, that's all going to be deflationary. We think the cyclical components will be more deflationary. And then if you turn to the structural components, look at China decoupling and, you know, redesigning the, the global supply chains, you know, that's going to be inflationary. Energy transition, you know, we've always said even before what happened in 2022, that the decarbonomics will be more inflationary geopolitical crises, you know, high frequency of extreme weather events, these are all going to be inflationary structurally in the medium to long term. However, we have to bear in mind deflationary structural components. For example, inflation targeting, China slowing its demand for commodities, tech advances in AI and robotics, you know, reducing, you know, manufacturing costs, these are going to be structurally deflationary. Overall, we think in the next uh, few quarters, we'll see much, you know, disinflation, even deflation in some countries, for example, Germany, because of base effects. And then we'll sort of gradually end up where I think central banks want to see this whole inflation picture landing, which is around the
0: 2% mark. And moving to interest rates now, how do we expect central banks to approach perhaps loosening monetary policy in 2024?
1: Our view is that the ECB has an increasing number of reasons to loosen faster than any than the BOE or Bank of England or, or the Fed. You know, just look at what's uh, the pickup in in loans and loan demands from both corporate Europe, uh, corporate Eurozone, and and households in in Europe, and that's actually either anemic, zero, or even turning negative in terms of the pickup in in, in loan demands. And this is not just about real assets or real estate, it's across the whole industry and across you know households. So throughout our house views this year, we have modeled various scenarios for strategic planning of our pools of capital and underwriting. And we've built a scenario where interest rates will fall faster than what the consensus have been saying. The main reason for this is we've always thought the ECB would have increased its interest rate too fast and too high. And you know the last few months and quarters have just shown that we were Probably right to model this this kind of scenario. We'll keep monitoring the situation very closely into twenty twenty four, and we don't see the ECB actually changing course uh, and you know keeping into uh, into that high interest rate environment. They will pivot faster. The Fed can hold on to a higher for longer until probably the November election, uh, except if the you know economy turns south uh, earlier than
0: expected. And in this new macroeconomic environment, what are the general implications for global real assets? So in our conversations with our 500
1: plus institutional investors, we know that investors face the denominator effect. You know, 2022 has been an extreme outlier in terms of performance of bonds and equities. Investors today want more inflation hedging attributes in their portfolios. They want less GDP sensitivities in their portfolios. And that means probably more real assets, but very specific types of of real assets. And then in terms of the the risk appetite for investment strategies, we really have to differentiate between what is a core investment strategy and a high-octane strategy. For core, the current environment and into 2024, we're just going to continue what we've been doing since 2022, which is defend core, build resilient portfolios, construct portfolios that have high exposure to strong megatrends, and resilient asset cash flows. And for high octane, and we'll come back to that, I think, in a minute, take advantage of the funding gap that we've always sort of put out there as one of our major theme, and take advantage of offering relief capital or rescue capital as banks will retreat. So maybe one last point. We always tell our investors and clients that at Patricia, we always should keep an eye on the mega trends when we build our strategies and take our investment and disinvestment decisions. That is a function of decarbonisation and energy transition, climate change, demographics and urbanisation, and lastly, digitalisation.
0: So with inflation slowing and interest rates expected to start declining in major economies this year, there are green shoots for an investment landscape that demands stability. But for investors in global real assets, what are the major trends to watch, which strategies will be the most attractive, and why is there reason for optimism? Here's Marty.
1: I think we have to start by looking looking back at what happened, you know, since uh, let's say mid-year twenty twenty-two and throughout twenty twenty-three. Investment volumes dropped significantly in real estate by more than fifty percent in Europe and you know, similar quantums and other big markets such as the Americas and Asia Pacific. Capital raising has been, you know, very difficult and has again dropped very significantly. So it's still gonna be a buyer's market in 2024 in terms of capital market value adjustments if you look at real estate it's actually europe that has corrected ahead of the us ahead of asia pacific so europe we think is probably going to be the one that will recover quicker simply because of what i said earlier about the changing course of central banks and and interest rates going into a number of of drops and looking at the numbers you know we've had now if you go from mid 22 to end of 23 5 or six quarters of corrections. And this is probably one of the longest correction, even longer than what we've seen in past recessionary moments, such as the GFC, for example. So we expect 2024 to see a pickup. The banks will call the tempo of the market. They will actually finish the extend and pretend and probably push into more active investment markets. And I think there is capital lined up and we want to take advantage of those market circumstances. I think the market would really pick up in 2025 when confidence would have returned uh, throughout the year this
0: year. So Patricia's house view has been pointing to two major funding gaps in debt and decarbonization. Can you tell us a bit more about these two trends and how you think they might develop in 2024?
1: So if you look at real estate, the typical sort of uh, borrowing period is around five to seven years. So the peak of the market was probably around End of 2021, early 2022, and you know this is a 1.5 trillion real estate debt market, and we've seen a retreat of banks. You know, after the GFC and more stringent banking regulations called Basel framework, and now we're entering into Basel IV, and we've seen the emergence of alternative lenders. And when you look at the value corrections so far, the LTVs and cost of debt that were the norm in 2028 2019 2020 etc we estimate the funding gap to be around 200 billion euros of that 1.5 trillion so as debt gets rolled rolled out there is a need for capital injection and equity to be reinjected in those capital structures that's the first sort of impact the second impact is really linked to the decarbonization you know europe is really focused on the e of esg whereas probably the us is more focused on the s in terms of the workforce construction and housing and, and affordability. And that decarbonization is estimated to be a full quantum over the next 10 years of around 7 trillion euros. So if you're an asset owner and you're faced with a refinancing challenge as well as a CapEx challenge, you know, you're know you going to be a motivated seller in the next few years. So these two will collide and and join up to create opportunities for more value add-on investments in 2024 and the few years after that.
0: Looking at the investment landscape in 2024, which real estate sectors and strategies are we most optimistic about and why? So just going back to what I said earlier about investors wanting two things,
1: depending on core and non-core. But if you think about having access or building into your portfolios, more inflation hedging capabilities, taking into account the decarbonisation, we think Things like the digital assets, such as data centers, EV charging stations, social infrastructure—you know these assets have a very little GDP sensitivity and have high inflation hedging capabilities. If you move closer to the sort of real estate, real estate sectors, the living sectors, such as residential, student housing, the demand-supply imbalances will lead to very resilient cash flows and and faster-than-inflation-growing cash flows over the next the next years. And then, lastly, if you look at what the needs are in terms of supply chain, in terms of both large, uh, big box, well located big box logistics, as well as urban logistics, cold storage, self storage, you know, servicing the various needs, including e-commerce distribution centers in constrained urban areas. We should remember Europe is very, you know, urban constrained. It's a highly densely populated area, very rich, but also there's a high competition for land. All of these living sectors. Logistics and industrial and digital assets for us are strategies we are have been and we would want to continue upping in our in our allocations for our pools of capital.
0: So, Justin, transaction volumes in infrastructure remained more resilient in 2023. Why was this, and do we expect to see a continuation of this high
2: liquidity this year? Yeah, look, it's certainly fair to say that transaction volumes were resilient compared to to real estate. However, I mean, infrastructure deal activity was depressed in 2023 as both buyers and sellers in the sector expressed caution about the market outlook and the impact of higher for longer interest rates. So there was a a wide bid-ask spread in, in 2023. In fact, if we look at both the number of transactions and the cumulative value of infrastructure deals throughout the year... Deal activity bucked its long-term trend of increasing year-on-year. Year. And final numbers, they're not in yet, but we do expect to see transaction volumes materially lower in 2023 to around levels last seen in around 2018. But looking ahead at 2024, I'm confident that transactions will pick up as, as market expectations of inflation and the interest rate environment adjust. And importantly, infrastructure managers have accumulated a record of over $300 US in dry powder to spend. I mean, that's on the back of exceptionally strong fundraising in 2021 and 2022. If we drill into that a little deeper, Core Plus strategies have witnessed the biggest increase in dry powder and now make up over 35% of all infrastructure available capital. So look, that's where we see the most activity this year. Dry powder in core strategies has etched down, remaining about 10% over the last year. And look, this is largely a function of the smaller amounts being raised in the core space as investors move up the risk spectrum in search of higher returns, given the increase in in higher interest rates over the last 24 months. And while fundraising and deal activities were challenged in 2023, the performance of the asset class really did remain strong. And we have seen green shoots in the institutional fundraising environment start to emerge throughout 2023. And finally, on an area which we will definitely be exploring in 2024 in terms of capital raising, and look, that will no doubt have a knock-on effect in terms of transaction volumes, really is the increasing access private investors have to alternative assets. Look, until now, small ticket sizes, regulatory hurdles, and a lack of education on private investing means that private institutional allocations to alternative assets, which includes infrastructure, really have been pretty much negligible. But that's certainly changing. Governments around the world, they recognize that private capital from a variety of sources is needed to tackle the world's key challenges over the next decade. So, We have seen several regulatory reforms that have been passed in recent years, and they're intended to increase the accessibility of private markets to private wealth. In Europe, for example, that's been led by the the LTIF 2.0 reforms, which actually came into play this month.
0: So looking ahead to this year, how do you think the new macro environment will impact infrastructure portfolio construction?
2: Well, look, look, Marty's described the current economic environment and, and a stabilization of bond yields below 2023 peaks, they'll be supportive for real assets such as infrastructure. Because by, by their nature, they're typical long-duration assets and thus they benefit from a lower discount rate applied in, in the discount rate cash flow valuations. And in addition to that, infrastructure assets will no doubt benefit from more stable refinancing costs because they often you know, have a sizable amount of leverage. So relief on discount rates, look, they'll be a welcome development. I mean, as over the past two years, the rise in in bond yields really have exerted downward pressure on unlisted infrastructure valuations. We can see that it's really been the strong inflation linkage of infrastructure assets and and their cash flows that have helped maintain generally resilient returns for the asset class to date. After two decades of benign inflation prior to the pandemic, the past two years really have been a salient reminder to asset allocators of the importance of infrastructure's diversification and inflation hedging attributes within investor portfolios. And look, looking forward over the next two years, look, as cash rates moderate, investors may once again seek other forms of stable yield. I think they'll certainly be prepared to, to increase duration. And look, that's that's going to suit Unlisted infrastructure assets, given these assets, generate reliable returns as they mature. In addition, unlisted infrastructure remains an under asset class for institutional investors, and look, even more so for smaller private wealth investors. If we take the results of Mercer's 2024 Large Asset Owner Barometer, which covers over $2 trillion of global assets under management across both public and private markets, It shows that infrastructure is the most attractive class at this point. 70% of surveys respondents are planning to either maintain or increase their allocation to infrastructure in 2024.
0: Looking at those increases in allocations, can you briefly touch on which infrastructure sectors and strategies we are most optimistic about this year and why?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, thinking from a sector and strategy perspective, three things come to mind for me. Firstly, I would say that we continue to stay focused on investing in sectors that reflect our long-term megatrends. Th- these are our structural trends that have the potential to generate cash flow growth throughout troughs and peaks in the economic cycle. And these trends are decarbonization and energy transition, demographic change and urbanisation, digitalization, and climate change adaption infrastructure. Central Bank's have so far been successful in reducing inflation from peaks, but it's come at a lower cost of economic growth. And with that in mind, we continue to focus on assets that have structural and thematic drivers that provide cash flow resilience compared to infrastructure assets that have more cyclical cash flows. Look, in fact, GDP exposed business models are really likely to come under further pressure over the next 12 months as we see the lagged effect of higher interest rates take take effect, particularly in Europe and the US. One of the most recent investments that ticks the decarbonisation and energy transition megatrend box is the rollout of EV charging stations at 200 locations across Germany. It's a partnership with German organic supermarket Tegut and EV charging technology provider Numbat. It's Patricia's exclusive arrangement, which It's going to have over $140 being invested and the installation of 400 ultra high-speed charge points. EV charging, it does fit our thematic investment mantra. And look, it's an opportunity really we've been watching closely for a number of years. Historically for us, it's been difficult to balance the risk and return proposition, but a combination of rise in EV penetration levels and evolving business models means really now it's a tipping point where we do see these, economic, these opportunities as being economically attractive and, and, and hence why we've made that investment. If I sort of think about the second sector, which we really continue to be bullish on, it would have to be infrastructure debt. I mean, we've got a very long track record in infrastructure debt investing going back to to the year 2000. We've invested over $2 billion in the asset class without a single default or negative IRR on any of the 54 assets that we've made in the last 23 years. Look, and we've seen investor sentiment towards infrastructure debt take off. And that's been driven by rising base rates and increased spreads. They have increased the attractiveness of debt relative to low risk core infrastructure equity strategies. I mean, history will tell us that the window to invest in infrastructure debt at all in returns that are similar to and arguably higher than the low risk, super core infrastructure equity, that doesn't persist for very long. And so really, we want to exploit that now. It's a limited time for investors to participate in this current return opportunity. Look, and finally, from a sectoral point of view, we're very optimistic on mid-market infrastructure. It's attractive to us. It provides the opportunity to achieve higher returns while improving diversification relative to traditional large cap. I mean, a key contributor to the mid-market return premium is is entry pricing. And In addition to attractive entry prices, we continue to favor mid-market infrastructure just given its inherent potential for valuation creation through active management. So it's our goal is to invest in platform businesses in that mid-market cap, uh, make them scalable, increasing reach and efficiency.
0: Great. And Marty, just to finish, um, in terms of your takeaways for 2024, why do you think Patricia is well set to navigate through this higher for longer environment?
1: <laughs> it's a great, great question. I guess I should probably start with experience. You know, we've been we've been here in Real Assets and, and Real Estate in particular for over 40 years, actually 2024 you know, is going to be the year where we will celebrate the 40th anniversary of Patricia, And we've, you know, I think successfully navigated various crises, you know, and market volatility. So that's one. Number two is deep and trusting partnerships, you know, partnerships with our clients, more than 500 institutional clients around the world, strong relationships with lenders, more than 275 lending relationships, some of them, you know, spanning, you know, decades, and then strong relationships with tenants. I think this is critical. We have thousands of touch points every day across our various portfolios. Our finger really is on the pulse of that economy and those those tenants. And I should say, maybe last but not least, and turning to, to Justin, you know, we're turning to the future. We're crafting strategies to take advantage of uh, Patricia being both active in infrastructure as well as real estate. And to benefit from very, very similar megatrends, the ones I highlighted before are you know common to both infrastructure and real estate, we think we can craft some smart and creative strategies around those mega trends.
2: Look, it, it's fair to say a prolonged higher interest rate environment is potentially challenging for infrastructure assets. But but I will say not all infrastructure assets are alike. And despite the significant interest rate hikes globally, we haven't witnessed the falls in unlisted valuations that we have seen in other long duration un, unlisted assets, such as property. Look and this is the case for Patricia's portfolio in aggregate. Our infrastructure portfolios performed very well in 2023 for all of our clients. Look and we attribute the res- the relative resilience of our infrastructure assets as I said to the frequent links between inflation and revenue and cash flows. It's in this environment that assets that have genuine pricing power and are able to adjust prices, they're the assets that are faring best. But apart from inflation pass-through, look, the other attribute that can provide an offset to a rise in the cost of capital is real cash flow growth. And in our view, we expected inflation will subside, but it will subside along economic growth. So given that, look, I'm confident, Patricia will navigate through a higher for longer environment because we focus on assets with structural cash flow growth rather than ones that have cyclical. Thanks to our guests, Mardi and Justin, and
0: thanks to you for listening. I'm Ed Whittaker, and you've been listening to the podcast from Patrícia. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to head over to our website, patrizia.ag, to find out more.
2: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.